1: Hello and welcome to this week's Government vs the Robots the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future I'm your host Jonathan Tanner and this week we've taken a trip to the Houses of Parliament to talk to Damien Collins Damien is the MP for Folkestone and Hive but he's probably better known to listeners of this podcast as the Chairman of the Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee We sat down to talk about the committee's recent report into disinformation why he doesn't have a lot of sympathy for companies like Facebook How to make sure that Britain's electoral laws remain robust for decades to come and whether social media is incentivising politicians to take extreme positions and if it does, what can politicians do about that? You might find you need to adjust your headset just after the break in this episode as we did have a small hitch with the sound gear that did put me into a bit of a fluster on the day. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Damien, thanks very much for having us here in the Houses of Parliament to talk to you. So much of what we've covered on Government versus the Robots falls under the auspices of your select committee. Um, And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. But I just wanted to ask first off, it's a particularly intense time here in Parliament at the moment. Can I ask you to cast your mind back to the night you were elected as a successor to Michael Howard? Um, And just tell me how excited you felt about becoming a Member of Parliament and what you were most looking forward to.
0: Yeah, well, it's an enormous privilege. And you've got the opportunity to... Not just represent your constituents, make a difference for the community that you serve. And, but also, you know, you're part of our national, national parliament. You know, when I first stood for election to parliament, my view was, well, you know, if you're in parliament, rather than being someone who is just, you know, frustrated and shouts at the television when you see um, mistakes being made, you're actually part of the process. You have a, have a vote and a say. So, um, that's what's um, so exciting about uh, being in politics is the ability to change things, to make things happen. And we're living through a period at the moment where regardless of what people think about Brexit or the debate or where we are, you know, there's no doubt that Parliament matters. It's Parliament that's got to make a decision.
1: And when you reflect on the events of the last few weeks, is it playing out? Are you able to have the influence that perhaps you hoped you might be able to have as a member of Parliament?
0: Well, you have a vote and some of these votes are very finely balanced. Um, I voted on Monday night for the... um, Parliament are given the right to set motions for the House to determine an alternative strategy to Brexit. You know that was one with the majority of twenty-seven. You know, so not one vote, but nevertheless, you know, votes do matter. You know, and in in a Parliament like this, where things are finely balanced, the way a small number of MPs vote can make a big difference.
1: It's good to know that you're still enjoying it and still very much a believer in the power of parliamentarians to make a difference on the issues of the day. Um, Recently, your select committee published its report into disinformation, which I think began life as the fake news inquiry and ended life as a disinformation inquiry. Can you sum up for us some of the findings of that report and what you felt were particular priorities that the government should be listening to?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, you're right. It started as an inquiry into fake news. What we realised during the inquiry is that fake news has become a somewhat debased term. So largely thanks to Donald Trump. But... uh, He's not the only one where fake news gets used as as an easy label for information that people just don't like or don't agree with where what we were talking about really was the spreading of in a malicious and deliberate way of false information disinformation with a deliberate purpose there's not people sharing stuff that happens to be inaccurate but organisations that have a strategy to try and influence and persuade people based on sharing lies Um, and we felt that this should be seen as a a form of harmful content in the way that we regard um, you know extremist material as harmful um, and or you know for if you're for, for a business copyright infringement is regarded as being harmful in those situations there are things we expect companies to do to act against that sort of content and we thought the disinformation should be seen in the same way but as we got into the inquiry and particularly when we got into looking at issues like Cambridge Analytica I think what became apparent to us it's not just a content problem it's not identifying and removing harmful content it's about understanding the systems that are used to make that possible and the way data is used the way algorithms are used to direct people towards harmful content is something we've got to have an opinion about as a society and i think we've got to be challenging the tech companies not just when they make mistakes but also over the ethics of the way they use their powers as well
1: and if you're anything like me which you may not be but as you dive deeper and deeper into a subject some things when you're looking for solutions tend to emerge as no-brainers and other things tend to feel like they're, they're not here and may take longer to solve. As you went through the process on the committee, what were the first things that jumped out to you as kind of really obvious that they needed to be dealt with? And what are the things that perhaps, now that the inquiry is over, you still find yourself mulling over while you're thinking through the subject? Yeah,
0: there are. I mean, there are some, there are some really obvious things. So if you take elections in particular, one of the big areas of concern was the fact that the Russians ran adverts during the... US presidential election, targeting voters in America, and they've done similar things in seeking to interfere in politics in other countries as well, including the UK. The systems of the tech companies make that easy, and our electoral law makes that easy, because you don't have to identify who you are and where you're doing it from. So if I put a leaflet through your door in an election campaign, it's got to have some legal type on it that says who paid for that leaflet and who it's targeting. If I put an ad on Facebook to target you, I don't have to include that information, not by law anyway. Facebook are changing some of their own platform policies on that. But it's there's no legal requirement. So one of the basic things is to say, well, where we've got legal standards, we apply in the offline world to make sure things are transparent and people understand who's sending them information and why that is. We should have the same standards applying in the online world as well. So some of those things, I think, are relatively easy wins. I think there are also issues which are, need to be resolved. And I think there's a clear, clear reason for doing it. And that's to say that the tech companies in certain circumstances should be liable for the content that their users generate. And the reason for that is that they are not passive displayers you know they are curating what you see if you know if you go on YouTube, the next up function is directing you towards the next thing to watch based on its guess of what you think you're interested in. If you're on Facebook, the newsfeed is not an organic list of the things your friends most recently published. It is a curated list it can be curated by Facebook to try and prioritize the content it thinks you're most interested in and also inserted in that it's, prom- it's promoted. Uh, content from advertisers as well so if they're curating it they've got some responsibility for it and if bad stuff is posted there harmful content is posted there and the tech companies can see it they should be required to remove it and that's why you know we've talked about in in our report ending the idea of platform neutrality that they're just serving other people's content they're not responsible for it and actually saying there should be some legal requirements so we don't rely on their community guidelines and policies we set legal standards what they should do. So for me, that is that, that in some ways is one of the, the basic principles that we're looking to apply to the idea of you know, regulating content online is is the question of the responsibility the tech companies have, and also with that the responsibility to report you know, when they see bad things happening, they should report it to the authorities, even if it's just a suspicion. And again, the Russian adverts on Facebook are a really good example of this. You know, a Russian agency in St Petersburg ran ads targeting voters in America. Uh, during an election campaign now that itself is 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 a crime in america the ads were run supposedly went through the facebook ad check team and no one spotted them Uh, and it wasn't until about a year or so later when they were asked to go and look for this that they found it there have been suggestions as well that the company was aware of suspicious russian activity on the platform before even before the election itself now if i was running a bank and i got suspicious I'd, i'd seen suspicious activity or i thought one of my customers was behaving fraudulently or laundering money through the bank I've got an obligation to report it to the Financial Conduct Authority. Failing to do that, after an, it could lead to me losing my license. I have there's jeopardy for me. But there's not for a tech company. So again, having requirements to report suspicions of bad activity on the platform should be there, and the ability of a regulator to go in and audit a company and say well, you know, when did you first know this thing happened? You know, something like Cambridge Analytica, that happened. You now, when did you first know about it? And who alerted you within the, system, within the company? And why wasn't more done about it earlier? Why didn't people know about it earlier? We don't really know the answers to any of those questions. Uh, there is supposedly an internal Facebook investigation going on, but we don't know the answers to it. There's no legal obligation for them to share that information. And they, th- that should change too. So I think in terms of transparency, looking at the way our own electoral law works, looking at the obligations and the liabilities and responsibilities, of the tech companies, these are all things that we can do. And I think we can set a legal framework for that and ask the companies to operate within it. And a lot of our recommendations are based around doing that. I think for the future, the the, the harder issues are going to be, but but really important, is the kind of ethics of technology. How do the companies use the massive power they've got? Do they use it fairly? Uh, is it reasonable? You know, If I go onto YouTube looking for information about a vaccine and I just see a chain of conspiracy theory films, is that responsible use of technology? You know, and so... Um, I think these are the sorts of questions we're gonna get into in the future. And we're gonna need um I think you know, I think we're gonna need independent regulators and bodies that have got the ability to audit and investigate with inside of these major tech companies to actually ensure that the standards we set are being followed.
1: We we're talking in the weeks following the horrific massacre in Christchurch and the attacker there chose to try and live stream the events that took place using different platforms. And I think the proposal you've set out of the difference between a a platform and a publisher does resolve or at least potentially legally resolve some of the questions that have faced us for a while but content on the internet always seems to find a place to live even if it doesn't live uh, in kind of on facebook or youtube there are darker corners of the internet do you think that it's possible to regulate those corners as well or are we just kind of prioritizing the big companies because that's where most bad stuff's happening
0: Well, we give a special priority to the the big companies because they serve the biggest audiences. So harm caused by someone posting content on, on YouTube or on Facebook can spread much more widely. And that's why I think it's reasonable we hold them to a higher standard for that reason. So the fact that the Christchurch Massacre was broadcast for 17 minutes on Facebook live stream, I think we've got to really say to ourselves, if Facebook believed they couldn't have done anything else and that was the best they could do, that their best isn't good enough. So we need to, I think, you know, go into that company like that and understand, well, why why did it take so long? What would you do if something similar happened again? What systems could you develop to make, it, make you more effective at spotting uh, this? Um, for content that's being uploaded by other users, you know, why wasn't it being identified earlier? Why wasn't more being done to prevent upload of known harmful uh, material? And again, I think we need to have a relationship with the big companies where we can... We can challenge them on that way based on facts and evidence from inside the organisation. This sort of regulatory oversight is normal in other large, complex international industries. It's just the tech sector has developed so quickly that these this hasn't developed alongside it. Now, you're right, there will always be dark corners of the internet that are hard to police. The first thing we can do is try to make, make those places as hard to find as possible. This has already happened with pirated content. I remember if you go back, you know, seven or eight years when this was a more live conversation with companies like Google, that they would say, well, you know, we, how can we regulate every website in the world? You know, But actually what you can do is you can look at the algorithms of your search engine and you can try and direct people away, pirated content uh, towards the stuff that um, is copyright protected. And they found ways of doing that. So so if there are websites or online communities which are posting and sharing harmful content, then I think we, what we should ask the big, the big companies is is that they're, they're not directing people there. It's hard to find through their servers and systems. We've also got to look at them taking more robust direct action against, you know, corners of the web that are, beha- that are homes of harmful content that seem to operate outside the law and are not interested in what, what we say. And then then you have to look at site blocking and other things again to try and make that content hard to find. You're probably never going to create a perfect solution. And people that know their way around the web and the dark corners of the web um, will probably find a way finding whatever they want. But that should not be easy to share. There should not be a Facebook group, a closed Facebook group, sharing all this stuff without anyone checking what it's doing. And that is a distinction I would draw.
1: And with an organisation like Facebook, and I think Facebook take a lot of the flack, but actually Google and YouTube and, uh, and Instagram and others have all, all face these issues and all have an impact on society. I've no doubt they're taking these issues seriously because they can affect the bottom line. Do you think that Facebook in particular, and maybe YouTube, are taking these issues seriously enough? There's always these, uh,
0: the suspicion that they do the minimum, that uh, they've moved in the last year because they've been under in intense pressure, uh, to demonstrate that they've learned from the mistakes of the past, I don't have huge, that huge amount of sympathy for them because most of the problems, you know, particularly with Facebook, occur because of the way in which they've designed their platform um, to maximise ad revenue. So the issues around data sharing, um, the vulnerability of user data, um, are largely there because, um, because that's, that's the way they make the money. Um, and they're more concerned about, the impression is that they're more concerned about that than they are. You know, they're more concerned about making money than they are protecting user data, and they've designed the, the company in that way. Um, you know, for, for other things, it's a question about what they what do they invest in actually tackling harmful content themselves. You know, well, have they got enough people? They make a huge amount of money. Have they got enough people? You know, checking, humans checking content. Have they are they using technology to help make it easier for them to identify harmful content more quickly? Is that a priority area for them? Do they do enough to identify fake accounts, which are Almost certainly, the the home to most of the more problematic content, and on Facebook there shouldn't be fake accounts, supposedly. So, um, I don't think these are unreasonable challenges for us to have have back to them. And I think what we need is is an independent body or bodies that have got the right to go in and check, because it it would be an odd position if we've got our uh, companies, which are effectively major utilities, um, which are an essential part of everyday life for millions and millions of people. That they are largely too themselves, and I think that's you know
1: that is not not acceptable, particularly when things go wrong. And does that body exist already that could go in and check what's going on, or is it something we need to create? I think it largely exists already. I think Ofcom
0: already is a sector of content regulator in broadcasting. Um, they have a code defined by Parliament. Uh, they have a, they have a sort of day to day code of practice which they write, um, which they can which evolves and can be updated depending on new practices and changes in technology. And I think we need something similar in, for, the, for internet content as well. No one says that we don't have freedom of expression on broadcast news in, in the UK. So the idea that you know trying to have some sort of standards being enforced online is suppressing free speech. It's not. It's just saying we think there should be some basic standards, a duty of care that the companies have towards their users, uh, and we expect them to meet those standards. And if not, there's a body that can do something about it. So it could be, so in my view, the content side could be on my Ofcom the data side, the data protection side is already done by the Information Commissioner. What we need to do is give Ofcom, in that situation, you know, proper powers, proper legal powers to go in, run investigations, demand access to documents, bring the you know, press charges, potentially, if necessary.
1: And regulating big companies is one thing. Another place we've got already well-established regulation is on elections and electoral law. Your report said that electoral law isn't fit for purpose. In what ways is it not fit for purpose?
0: Well, it's not fit for purpose because the same standards that are applied to offline communications are applied online. So the electoral regulation here was really written for a pre internet world, let alone a pre social media world. And um, therefore, the sorts of transparency around political communications that exist offline don't exist online. The other things we've got to consider is um, you know, we've got, ba- we, we ban broadcast advertising in politics, but we live in a world where you know, for many younger people in particular, television as such doesn't particularly exist. They have internet-enabled smart devices, which they watch audio-visual content through. And their favourite YouTube channel is just as much television to them as BBC One is. And some of that media is heavily regulated in terms of political communication. Some of that media is totally unregulated. Um, and we need to think about that. What does, what does that mean? And um, There's an immediate need, I think, to have transparency, to have information so at least you know who's running what ads. But in the RAM, we've got to think about what does our electoral law mean in a world where people consume news and information in a totally different way. It do, for example, as well, people have freedom of speech in elections, but you know, should they have freedom of reach in the same way? It does in the old days when delivering a leaflet or paying for press advertising required a substantial investment of time and money on behalf of the campaign? But if now you can reach you know millions of people really cheaply at the click, at the click of a button, um, you know, what does that mean for our electoral spending? rules. So I, I think you know, there are some immediate things we need to get done, but in the round, I think we've got to see, we've got to recognise the fact that as people and communities organise themselves through social media and consume news and information in that way and consume advertising in that way, um, we've got to think about what political communication campaigns means. In a world like that, our
1: rules are just simply not written with that in mind. And one of the things we know that political campaigners can do today is be hyper-targeted in the yeah. way that they go after people. Um, and we're still living in the aftershocks of one democratic exercise in which there was a lot of hyper-targeted advertising. Do you think the ability to target individuals in a, sort of psychogra- in a way that's psychologically and psychographically profiled potentially um, swung the referendum outcome? I think if you look at the, the
0: campaigning in the referendum, and I think it's rather well similar to the Trump campaign as well, they did used similar agencies and similar techniques. Um, I think it's what the, what the campaigning does is it seeks to not necessarily persuade people of one opinion or another. It targets people that are already sympathetic to their, their point of view and changes the way they behave. So it turns some much on someone who is passively interested in an issue to someone who's actively interested in it, who is actually campaigning, propagating the message to their friends, and will certainly go out and vote. And if you look at the investment both in the Trump campaign and the Trump there's a big investment in the last sort of 48 hours of the campaign. This is a big question, which to me suggests that it's, it's being used a lot as a sort of big turnout vote uh, effort. And I think it's probably highly effective. I mean, both one of the common hallmarks of both those elections is high turnouts and highly differential turnouts as well. And there was some evidence we referred to in our interim report, which is an internal piece of work came down did looking at some of their political work in America. And again, what they were demonstrating to, to, to potential clients they were pitching to was that they managed to drive much higher levels of turnout amongst people that have been targeted. So to me, that's clearly what they clearly believe is effective and clearly what they're doing. You know, should people be allowed to do it? I, I think, again, if people, people, you know, people who are being targeted in this way should have the right to know who's doing it and why they're doing it. They can then weigh it up as to whether they believe that message or not. But I think there's also a interesting legal issue here we look at in the report, which is about consent. Under the European GDPR rules, you have to give informed consent for political information about you to be gathered and used. In um, Europe, under the GDPR rules, there are certain protected characteristics of data um, that relates to people's political views, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, ethnicity. And there's a really big issue, I think, around targeting people through social media with these targeted ads based on psychological portraits of people, is have they given their consent to be targeted in that way? If I've set up a Facebook profile and I've deliberately not said what my political views are when I've been asked, but yet what Facebook can do is is guess what they are um, and make that data available to to someone else to target me with advertising, then is that legal? You know, if I'm targeted by if someone's gone to Facebook and said I want a lookalike audience for this group of people who are my known supporters and they give my data to contact uh, users of Facebook based on their assumed political orientation and they're targeted, micro-targeted in that way, is that legal under GDPR? And I think it sounds like a a pretty Mm. technical question, but actually it's quite an important one about the use of inferred knowledge from data in political campaigns and whether people have given their consent to be targeted in that way. And actually ethically, should we be um, selling politics in the same way we sell sell cars and clothes uh, online? You know, Should there be different rules? And I think this, these are really important questions for the future.
1: And you mentioned GDPR, which is European legislation. And I think just today um, the European Commission has said that it will be enforcing copyright laws against big tech companies as well. Um, these pieces of European legislation obviously may well not apply in Britain post-Brexit. Do you think that that's an opportunity for Britain to kind of lead the way on regulation of tech companies? Or is it a threat to British citizens in an environment where we're probably due to have more electoral volatility than we might otherwise have had. Um, well, the intention of the government is to is to comply
0: with GDPR rules. So there's we have we share what they call data equivalence with the rest of the rest of Europe. I think they're basically going to be in, in the Western world two standards: there's the European standard and there, there'll be the American standard. I don't think there's the role or the room necessarily for the UK to develop a sort of a third way. Um, and I think. You know, we may see some of these issues differently to other, to other Europeans, but I think one of the reasons people in America, in particular, are quite interested in the debate we're having here, is that I think you know we're more like them, but nevertheless we're you know we're part of the European framework. And a lot of people in America who know how hard it is to legislate on, on anything at all, let alone on something like this, uh, are interested in the debate in Europe and see well maybe European norms which are which provide more power to the individual over the com- over the big tech companies. Maybe those will become the sort of global norms for for the Western world, and I certainly think you know we can't lose sight of the fact that people do have rights, and you know the people people running companies that are gathering data have got certain rules they have to follow and how they use that data, the consent they've had to use it, and what they do with it.
1: And we've spoken to an organisation called Who Targets Me on yeah. Government versus Robots, um, who look at who's buying adverts and targeting you on Facebook and elsewhere on the internet with them, and they are wondering about the role that dark money is playing politics at the moment. So a lot of politicians who are campaigning, they may not have relationships with people who are using um, opaque funding for political causes, but they benefit from those political causes. So what what prospects are there for us to really update electoral law when most of the people in charge of doing that updating are benefiting, perhaps vicariously, but benefiting nonetheless from dark money in political advertising? Well, I think...
0: This is also about looking at, not just transparency, but what we regard the electoral period as being, which has traditionally just been the short campaign, you know, the five weeks or so, or it's a bit longer than that, before the poll itself. But you know, we've seen evidence during our inquiry of organisations running adverts, no-one knows who's, who's doing it, uh, there's either no information about the organisation or there's just a brass plaque, there's a name of an individual, there's a registered company that they're linked to, but there's no accounts, there's no information, no idea where the money's coming from. It's really easy for a wealthy person that wants to give money to support a political idea and have that money spent through proxies and to, to reach a big audience online is a really easy thing to do. And I think we should be taking more interest in it when people are spending significant amounts of money into who's doing this, where the money's coming from, because um, it's m- open massively to exploitation. and maybe has been for a long time. And if people are using this um, sort of campaigning to run dark ads, targeting people individually then you know, unless you happen to send it to someone that might not want to receive it or takes issue with having received it, a lot of this wouldn't even be observed. No one would know. And uh, so I think you know, the platform changes that Mark Zuckerberg has talked about with Facebook should give us cause for concern here as well. If, if, if the new model for Facebook is going to be, you've got a bucket of data that's associated with you, it's linked to your Facebook profile, but is also connected to WhatsApp or other encrypted messaging channels, you can still be targeted in just the same way with, with advertising, but every ad effectively becomes a dark ad then, and not even the company it's, host, it's hosting it so they can see. You know, so we're, we're just opening up this massive network that can contact you know, billions of people around the world. And, and we're told, well, no one can see what's going on, no one's got any responsibility for what's going on. We don't know what people are receiving. You know, that, that, that's got to be a big worry.
1: And just changing tack slightly to think about the kind of, some of the politics behind all of this, in a um, in a different way, you've talked a bit about online harms and as a ledger of online harms, which the, the yeah. Centre for Human Technology keep. Those harms feel to me when I look at the list, they're very much a, they tap into a lot of what it is to be human. Mm. And I wonder whether the politics of dealing with tech require us to focus on kind of issues of what it is to be human as much as issues like the NHS and mm. education and abstract political issues. Do you think that this is an area in which politicians and politics has to get involved in humanity and be a bit more human about conversations?
0: Uh, yeah, I do.
1: And I think that's why I talked earlier on about the sort of
0: ethics of technology and actually taking a step back and saying, you know, is that, good, is that, is that right? You know, is, is directing people to content that is misleading and harmful the right thing to do? You know, is, if that is based simply on an algorithm, selecting and guessing, you know, preferences for you, but nevertheless, that's the journey it's leading you on. Is that responsible? And I think these are harder questions because I think what the tech companies like is the certainty of either being told there are no rules in this space, you can do what you like, or saying in this incident, there is a law and you can't, and you've got this is what you've got to do to, to abide it. What they don't like doing is exercising judgment about what, people, what others are doing. Now, I can understand that if, if people are posting content, they don't want to be seen to be policing the entire platform. Um, but nevertheless, they have a responsibility. You know, and certainly they do have a responsibility to police the more the more extreme and more harmful sorts of content. I think they do have a responsibility to use the powers they have responsibly and to look at algorithmic bias and other things that may operate in their systems that they didn't design in, but nevertheless have become a feature of the
1: way they work. And I was on Twitter while we were preparing for this interview just looking at Full Fact had looked at whether the Brexit march actually had a million people on it. And Full Fact says an organization we've had on the podcast before and they said no, no chance mm. was there Conclusion And the thread beneath it had lots of people who I'm sure would be very convinced that they don't succumb to fake news or disinformation. Absolutely adamant there must have been a million people on that march. And where I'm going with this is asking whether there is a temptation for um, politicians who recognise that politics is very emotional these days and that emotion wins out over facts and rationality in most political debate in the UK at the moment, it seems, especially if you spend too much time on Twitter. Mm. Um, is the temptation then not to a politician who wants the reins of power to polarise people further because the incentives are stacked towards taking polarising positions? Well, I think the danger is the...
0: It's, it's an interesting question, which is, um, would a politician in that environment, would they, do they seek to play to extreme audiences? Or um, does the system encourage them to do that? You know, uh, because the, um, the way information is shared... Through social media, when it spreads quickly, it's spreading through people who are of a like mind. And so, in some ways, the, the type danger would be that the algorithms could train politicians to play to set audiences rather than seeking to appeal to a you know, broader sweep of society. And that their reward, you know, their judgment of their reward, is engagement on social media. But actually what they're not recognizing is they're not necessarily um, you know reaching a wider pool of people. They're just reaching more people that think the same thing, uh, and and that that. That is something that we should be concerned about is actually whether the increasing polarisation of debate um, in politics is, is actually being driven by the way social media works and the reward people get for taking up more, more extreme opinions. Um, I mean, the Facebook um, algorithm really is, is, is engagement with an issue. So someone could post something and they get loads of really negative comments, but Facebook doesn't necessarily distinguish between people that love it and people that hate it. So in some ways, the most effective thing you could do if you want a big audience on Facebook is to be as controversial as possible.
1: You know, um,
0: and it will reward, will reward that.
1: Um, and It strikes me that some politicians have noticed that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and I wonder what I wonder really what we can do to encourage those politicians who don't want to polarise people because the, the algorithms are stacked against consensual politics. Um, and that feels to me like a big question of our times.
0: Yeah, and also they're normalising behaviour. So a politician or a journalist, even if they've got extreme views, they will stop short of saying really uh, outrageous things. But then ever, ever, step by step, they're normalising um, bad behaviour. You know, Dismissive language, maybe language that could be considered abusive, that targets particular minority communities that every time they get close to that line, they're normalising a certain pattern of behaviour that will encourage other people to go further. And, that, and that's why we should all be really concerned about this.
1: And I always try and end an episode on an optimistic note. So in all the inquiries you did, and ending on, ending on a moment of great concern, what it, have you seen during the inquiry into disinformation that gives you cause for um, optimism that we can reshape public debate and, and make things less polarised and perhaps a bit more consensual and civil? Well, I mean,
0: people have access to more information than they've ever had. So the ability of people to inquire and ask questions and gather information, um, to contact people in a positive way, to build interesting campaigns behind issues they care about, has never been easier. So all of that is a really positive thing. What we have to recognise is these same same tools that can do good can also do bad as well. And I think we've been slow in recognising and understanding the way some of these tools can be exploited. But ultimately, um, you know, it, what, we've got, what we've got to do is if we want to appeal to people with better, better nature and better instincts on important political ideas, we've got to get the information out to them as well um, and, and be quicker than the bad people and call out the bad stuff when it happens too. And that's, you know, I always think that, uh, that transparency is a great, you know, it's a great disinfectant.
1: Damien Hines, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all from Government versus the Robots this week. Hopefully you've enjoyed the episode. As ever, if you've enjoyed it, please do tell your friends about it. You can follow us on Twitter at GOVT underscore VS underscore robots. My thanks to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast, and we'll see you again next time.